this is a Studio Scotch podcast presented by Scotch College, Western Australia. Hi, this is Sam Sterrett. And I'm Steve McLean. And this is The Range Project. Kate Cheney, welcome to Scotch and welcome to The Range Project. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, now, Kate, first of all, congratulations on becoming the member for Curtin. That must have been an exciting roller coaster ride, that whole election cycle for you. What was it like when you won the seat and then you eventually had your first day in Parliament in Canberra? What did that feel like? Um, so, winning the seat was really interesting. After the election, I actually felt completely calm, even though uh, it was hanging in the balance, because at that point I felt like, I've done everything I can. I've, you know, fulfilled my obligation to the community group and, 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 um, if I don't win, I'll go back to my quite nice life and that's okay too. So I felt quite, quite calm about what the outcome was going to be. Um, and then obviously I was very excited to, to win. Um, and first day in parliament was very moving, actually. Just the, I think the enormity of realizing that, you know, I was one of 1,240 people who had ever sat in the, the, the lower house and the, the responsibility of, of representing my community um, and, and being part of that democracy that I really believe in. It was actually very moving. Yeah, I mean, it's a, congratulations again. It's a massive achievement and, um, and we're going to get into your political life and your political views and what you're doing right now in politics, but I just want to sort of start with, can you give us a bit of a potted summary of some of the diverse experiences that you've had along the way um, to becoming a member of parliament. Sure, and I certainly never expected to to be in politics. So I, I started, I studied law at UWA, a bit of arts first, then law. Uh, worked at Blake Dawson Waldron as it then was. It's now Ashurst, a, a law firm based in Sydney. I, I was based in Sydney. Um, did an MBA. Went to Boston Consulting Group and did management consulting for a few years. Um, also based in Sydney, and then moved back to Perth to have my first baby. Um, and after that, worked at Perth Airport briefly as general manager of business development, and then had seven years at West Farmers in a few different roles. I started as Aboriginal Affairs Manager, um, was general manager of Emerging Ventures, which was building a portfolio of investments in high-growth sectors that we weren't currently in, and then um, also as Sustainability Manager at West, at West Farmers. Um, took some time off and went travelling with my kids and then um, spent the last four years at Anglicare WA in community services as Director of Innovation and Strategy. Um, and I sat on a number of different boards over the last decade, uh, mostly non-profit. So it wasn't on your radar to be a politician from early on? Absolutely not, no. I mean, I, I'd, I, I suppose a few people had asked me over the years, would you ever consider politics? And my response was always, well, I don't really fit into either party, um, so no. Um, and really it was just in the last 10 years I started thinking more about our future building system. And I, I have sat on the board of an organisation called Next25 that looks at how do we actually improve our future building system. And that's politicians, government, corporate sector, non-profits, community, media, and together we actually make the future. And and, and um, that organisation had a 
theory that we were not making good long-term decisions in the country and was looking at why that was. So for the last decade, I'd been thinking more about um, how do we make better long-term decisions and increasingly thought politics is a part of it, but really didn't see that I had a role to play there. Well, what were your other reservations other than you not having a role? Were there other things that were holding you back from getting into politics? Well, definitely um, the lifestyle is pretty awful um, and I've got three kids who are now – 16, 14 and 11 um, and it was pretty hard to, you know, I mean not that I really gave it much thought at the time but um, I think, you know, I, the life of a federal politician is not a great not a great lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and also I think it just looked pretty revolting. You know, you, you, you just hear all the bickering and um, it didn't feel like a very constructive place to be. So uh, it was not something that, you know, I, I could imagine yeah. being That's something in. that's put me off politics for a long time. I just yeah I see I see that bickering it's so so useless and there's so little outcomes I see that kind of almost transfers into your policies now maybe because you you're trying to bring in a little bit more accountability into politics Yeah that's right I mean I, I and I suppose um I do have a deep faith in democracy so um and a belief that that it can actually heal itself and it can improve but it just felt like it had got to a point where it was all about winning and not really about setting a vision for the country. Um, and then I had this realisation, well, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, how I ended up to be, you know, being here, but this sense that the cavalry is not coming, the system is broken and we actually are the system. And if you don't step up and do something about it, you can't expect someone else is going to fix it. Um, can I ask, is, is there a sense that this government right now is a little um, more collegial, than the government that you'd been watching for, for years up, up to this point? I mean, obviously, my experience now is very different to my experience as an observer, mm. um, so it's hard to make a direct comparison. But um, I still feel quite optimistic, actually, and, and the government, with the expanded crossbench, um, they, they are showing signs um, of a willingness to be more collaborative. So uh, as a crossbench, we have a weekly... Uh, briefing on incoming legislation from the government, which apparently has never happened before for the crossbench, so they you know wouldn't know anything about the legislation until it pops up in Parliament. Um, and certainly on um, the climate change bill and the National Anti-Corruption Commission bill, there has been engagement with the crossbench and opportunities to provide input into those two key pieces of legislation, which um, you know, I certainly have really appreciated. Oh, that's great. Now, what does a typical day look like for you in Canberra? Like, if you could walk us through, you know, you get up in the morning. What does a what does a day look like for, particularly for our students here who are studying politics and law and they're thinking about maybe a career in this, um, in this profession? Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, it's um, so I, I wake up now with the three hour time difference. So you get up at really four o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm renting an apartment with a couple of other independents, uh, Monique Ryan and Kylie Tink. So we've got this sort of student life over there <laughs> in an apartment that we've furnished through Gumtree, but we've all got families and family, you know, lives at home as well. So um, get up, have have breakfast with them, um, head over to Parliament House, which is a short walk from where I'm where I'm living there. Um, the one of the things I've found really interesting is. People don't really spend time sitting in the House of Representatives. Um, you go in when you've got something to say and, you know, when you've got a speaking slot com coming up and it's all pretty structured. Um, so the day is full of meetings. So I might have 
six half-hour meetings in the morning with different um, advocacy groups um, on on different issues who want to come and talk talk to me about things. Uh, if the bell rings, you need to go in for to to vote on if there's a division. Um, and then question time is obviously the time when everyone is in the house, which is a pretty um, it's a very combative sort of vibe. Uh, in the first week, I was thinking, I can't believe I have to sit through three years of this. It's amazing how quickly you assimilate and, and you, you know, start to normalize the culture of just slinging match of, you know, shouting each other down. But it's, it doesn't feel like a great way to, um, really interrogate legislation. And then in the afternoon, there might be, um, you know, government business that you want to speak on or, um, you know, other meetings and then events in the late afternoon and, and evening again around different, um, issues or interest groups and then, um, probably get home about nine or something and have a, have a bowl of pasta with the girls and, um, you know, and fall into bed fairly exhausted. Right. And do it all over again. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and you've, you've only had a short time now really, um, in government. Um, if there was one thing you could change in the way that it operates from what you've seen, the way it functions, what what would that be? Um, I probably have two answers. One is I think there's the potential to reform question time as a way to actually interrogate policy better. Um, but that would apply more broadly as well to the way Parliament works. And and I, I think it, it would be much healthier if we actually sat and listened to debate rather than rocking up for the bits when we get to speak and leaving after that. Um so, and, and actually using that, that parliament as a policy workshop, as a, as a way to improve the legislation that we have and make sure we're taking into account the interests of a wider group of, of stakeholders. Uh, that's a huge cultural shift. I think it used to be a bit more like that. Um, but now it is very much, um, you know, it's, it's much more about speaking than listening. And, uh, uh, Zoe Daniel and I, had a bit of a giggle. We were in there and we actually just went in to have a listen to, you know, soak it up and learn the procedure and, and hear what people had to say about various issues. And a number of other MPs walked past us and made comments. And Zoe said to me, isn't it terrible that if you actually choose to sit in the House of Representatives, you're considered the weird kid? So, you know, I think that, that actually listening more would be, would be good for democracy. Okay. Um, how do you think about marrying your role on the national stage over there and, and then your role as the member for Curtin and the, and the needs and the wants of your, of your, of your electorate versus these massive um, um, policies and platforms and, and politics that are going on in Canberra? Mm, it is, it's the most fascinating part of the job, actually, because there are, there are these sort of, I think, four bits of the job. Um, here in Curtin... Um, I'm helping individual constituents with their issues and I've got people in my office who are really focused on that and being present in Curtin to um, represent government here. In Canberra, there's learning your way around <coughs> the, the processes and the procedures and, and you know, working out how to have an impact there. But the last bit of the job is this fascinating intersection between how do I actually get the voices and opinions of the people in Curtin to be heard in policy development. And so we're doing a lot of experiments in, in that area at the moment. And having, because I, I was asked to run by a community group and we built this community from scratch really um, in four months. We had 900 volunteers 
And there was this real groundswell of support and interest in being engaged in our democracy, which I think is a very healthy thing. And um, part of that trend of community reclaiming politics is having a voice. So, for example, on the National Anti-Corruption Commission bill, last week we held a policy workshop and we had 60 people um, from all walks of life coming along and participating in um, a workshop looking at eight different parts of the legislation and we had a lawyer standing around the room, eight lawyers, each with a sort of poster about what that aspect of it was and people could put up, would talk to the lawyer and understand it more and put up what they like and what their concerns were um, on things like whether we have public hearings and what the powers of the commission are and we then summarised uh, what we heard from the community in that um, in that session and turned it into a submission to the committee that's considering um, the, the anti-corruption commission bill, and and though and there was a, there was great response to that, um, and I'm really interested in doing more things like that. So the, I've got a youth advisory group, which is two students from each of the schools in Curtin, um, to and I'll meet with them periodically to get their views on what matters and what they would like me to be. Um, you know, expressing on their behalf in, in, in Canberra. So lots, lots of experiments there. Um, but, but I find that a really exciting part of the job. Do you always work with volunteers? My, my experience with community politics has been the people that generally want to have a voice are the ones that maybe have the time to. And also they, they tend to be a little bit more raucous than the other. And, the, and there's a, there's a big community there, obviously, but there's a lot of people that are, Working, don't have time. They've got kids, and and that that can sometimes be an unheard voice. How do you how do you go about making sure that everyone within the community has a voice? It is a really big challenge, and um, I mean, uh, I don't know. The answer is I don't know, but we're trying different ways. So, we put a newsletter out to the whole electorate, saying, "Please tell us what issues you care about." Um, you know, follow this QR code and and um, fill in the survey, so that we can actually. Um, consult you on the issues that you care about. Now, you don't get a great response rate from that. And I'm very conscious that 49% of the electorate, um, you know, didn't prefer me as the, the representative. And it's very challenging finding ways to actually communicate with with people who don't want to engage. Um, all, all you can do is keep saying there are these opportunities available for those who want to take them up. Um, you can't force people to, in, you know, engage in, in our democracy beyond their, you know, their, um, their vote every three years, um, but just creating those opportunities. And we're doing things like we're having um, a monthly mobile office. Um, we've done one in a pub, one in a cafe on a weekday morning and trying to mix up the time and the place in an attempt to um, to appeal to you know different demographics or people who and, and get a diversity of views there, but it is an ongoing challenge. Mm. So onto the environment, which I know is something you're absolutely passionate about. How how do you plan to speed up the adoption of renewable energy, given that coal fired coal, fi coal fired power stations are probably getting getting switched off a little sooner than than we all thought now. Um, yeah, and just if you could just share with us what you're most excited about in that space at the moment in politics. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is a huge challenge for our economy uh, at this time. And, and the thing that I'm um, excited about is the economic opportunity that comes out of that. So um, if you look at the history of Western Australia, we built a, 
a pipeline to Kalgoorlie, which enabled the gold rush to happen. Um, we had some f- really long-term thinking on the northwest shelf, which enabled another wave of economic activity. And we now need to be thinking at that level about how do we make the, the bold decisions necessary to ensure that we actually continue to be an energy superpower, but shift that to being a renewable energy superpower. Um, and we just have not had any of that thinking in the last decade. I, I would say probably at a state and federal level, um, it, it, any transition is difficult. You know, it's painful, but you don't want to be the one breeding horses when the car's just been invented. And I want to be thinking about how do we create an economy that means that we do actually have prosperity, you know, once my kids grow up and they have kids. Um, we, it's very easy to be complacent when you've been digging stuff out of the ground and, and, and selling it for, you know, decades. Uh, and it's hard to imagine that that might end. Um, but we need to be, uh, you know, realise that our, our prosperity is fragile and if we don't make the most of, of the renewable energy opportunities, um, we will miss the boat. Um, so, so that's a, you know, it's a tough, that transition will be tough. Um, but I think it, it it's possible, and um, and it's turning the ship around slowly. So the climate change bill was a, a good start, setting a forty three percent target. Probably not as as high as um, it should be, but it at least you know gets something in, on on paper. And already I've heard from people in the private sector that that just gave some security that uh, we are moving in this direction, which they can then invest on on the basis of that of that security. Um, there are other things like the safeguard mechanism, which is a big um, sort of a, it's a bit of a complex regulatory instrument and maybe more complex than it needs to be, but that's politically driven as well. But we do need a clear regulatory framework that makes it clear that we are actually going to make this transition that can, um, you know, th- that can ensure that we're rewarding the right businesses and phasing out the businesses that are not, you know, don't have a long term future. People are potentially a little bit more open to change after COVID, I think, as well, because they realise that things that were a standard uh, can fall away very quickly. So you know, hopefully that makes makes things a little bit easier to ha- transition people's mind, mindset. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I don't think we'll really understand the implications of COVID for quite a long time yet. Um it, but I think it, it did a few things. It did probably make us realise that some things are quite more fragile than we thought that they were. I think it also had a bit of an impact on how we think about community and and our need for each other and the sorts of jobs that are actually essential to us. Um, and I think that that thinking will will you know probably play out over the next next decade as well. I agree. Okay, so now I want to pivot, if you don't mind, Kate, because I know in the interest of time, to some student questions that we've got. Um, my colleague, Lorraine Kerrigan, who's teaching politics and law, um, she's got some awesome questions from our Year 11s and 12 students, and I'm hoping I can throw a few at you Go for now. It. Um, uh, so the first question is, globally, democracy is in decline. Do you believe the far right is more of a threat to democracy than the far left? Yeah, I think in Australia, and I don't want to be complacent about this, but we have some things um, in our favour in Australia. Compulsory voting um, and preferential voting both create a pull towards the middle. 
So I think they do make it a bit hard for that extremism on either side to to take hold. Um, and that, and when I look at um, the movement that's happening now with more community independence, um, you know, winning seats across the country, I think that is really evidence of the fact that that um, community can actually play a role and and pull things back to the centre in our democracy. And that's probably the most exciting thing about you know what's happened this year um, is that we are not completely at the behest of of extreme you know parties and uh, with, you know with no other alternatives. Uh, th- there is definitely a threat to democracy globally, and it is you know it is worrying. Um, one of the things that um, I continually talk about is we need to actually be listening to each other and trying to find some common ground rather than uh, being in our echo chambers, which is not helped by social media, um, and and find ways that we can actually you know build community together rather than I'm right and you're wrong. Um, it's a threat in terms of whether the far right is more of a threat than the far left. Uh, it probably feels a bit that way now, I think. Um, when I was growing up, there was capitalism and communism and that was sort of the, you know, that, that was where the battle was. Um, we've moved a bit from that and, and I think this authoritarian, um, trend that we're seeing across the, con- uh, across the world and this strong, you know, this sort of desire for a strong man type leader, um, is, uh, you know, I think that's a threat and we need to, you know, we're not, completely immune from it um, but I think we can take some comfort that there are some structural things that that hopefully will help, help us not end up in that situation. I have also heard you speak before on, on a podcast about um, that dichotomy between the left and right can be a little bit unhelpful too in in trying to bring people together on on common issues. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I, I actually think that the, the you know that dichotomy of left and right that we've always associated with our political choices just doesn't apply anymore. So a lot of the big issues that we're facing now don't fit on a spectrum from left to right. Climate change, although it has become this sort of identity issue. Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit that. Uh, preserving our, our climate as it is, is a fairly conservative, um, you know, position, really. Um, and so on, on climate, a lot of these, uh, our politics has become much more driven by identity, um, rather than alternative views of the future. And I think that the political poles are shifting at the moment and we don't quite know where they're going. But they don't yet, or they don't currently, I think, represent two alternative visions of the country that we want to be. And this applies in other, in other places too. Um, and they're in flux. So what, they will resettle when we find two alternative views of, you know, a vision, sets of values, the way we think things should be organized. Um, and if you look at what's happening in the UK this week, uh, the conservatives, um, you know, got into power um, with, you know, through well, Brexit. They really appealed to a very different base to their traditional base and then brought in these massive tax cuts, uh, you know, fairly focused on the, the high-end 
that caused absolute uproar combined with then a fracking ban that split the party again. And there's just this sense that they don't quite know what it is that they stand for. And and, and we're seeing a little bit of that chaos here too. I think all the more reason why we need to, why our politicians need to collaborate and listen more, like like you've been saying. Absolutely. And also I, th- I think that's when you see it coming back to values when um, you know communities like Curtin across the country have said what we're seeing in these two polls does not represent who we are and what we believe in. So we're just going to have our own version and, and um, you know, th- this is actually what we stand for and these are our values um, and the parties will need to, you know, look at um, what that means for them. And one of the really interesting things I think about a lot of the discussion we're hearing about the, the Liberal Party looking at um, where to from here is what I've heard from the public discussion. A lot of it is focused on how are we going to win again it's not about who are we, what do we believe in, uh, what's our vision for the future. It's how are we going to win these seats or those seats and very much focused on the winning rather than why you actually want to win. Yeah, it's really disengaging for people. I'm, I'm one of those people that will look at policies independently and, and not fit into any political group. And, it's, and it just it makes us, me collectively, just not really want to be part of politics because I don't see how I can make any difference by my voting for one or the other because, you know, it's confusing. And that I think is um, what I found really exciting about this community independent movement. It was community saying, we're going to take take that back. And, um, and meeting, I mean, I, I had serious doubts before running about whether this was a crazy thing to do. But then as soon as um, as soon as we went public and I agreed to run and we went public, I had no doubts at all because there was just this upsurge of people who were so excited about being able to feel optimistic about something in politics again. And they brought this incredible energy to um, to the campaign and varied skills and, and a lot of them had never been involved in politics before but they, they kind of felt like here's something I do actually want to get behind. And it had been a while since I felt optimistic about anything mm. in politics. That's good because yeah, you were going to say it's, it, like if you don't win though, there's nothing you can do, and then there's that potential to sell out and lose your your foundation. How do you hold on to those things? Like we want to maintain our values rather than just let's win, and then we can worry about that later on. So that's really <clears throat> simple for me, and I think having. Uh, because politics is not my life and I've had other careers and I will have other careers in the future, um, it's not win at all costs for me. So, you know, people have said to me, well, now it's the first day of your next election campaign. And I've really resisted that because um, the way I, and maybe this is a bit naive and idealistic, but I think you've got to hold, hold on to that as well. Um, I will do what I think is right and um, and stand up for the values that I'm hearing from my community. Now, if if that doesn't gel with people in three years' time, that's fine. I've got a life to go, th- you know, to go back to, uh, and I think that 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 um, bringing a bit of balance into that, um, rather than it being all about, you know, your career and your life and how you're going to climb the pole, um, just means you, you can actually stand on your values rather than having to make those compromises. Okay, we've got another student question for you before, and we're nearing the end, and we've got a couple of quick-fire questions at the end for you, but here's another great one from uh, one of our Year 11 students, I believe. Why has it been so difficult to establish Indigenous voices as an in- advisory group to Parliament? What power will Indigenous voices have on policy decisions? Mm. 
Um, great question, and it, it's something I do feel passionately about. My um, experience in that area, I, I was Aboriginal Affairs Manager at West Farmers, and when I went in, I um, started drafting a. We were work, I was working with an advisory group on a um, re- reconciliation action plan, which is about respect, relationships, and opportunities. And I was completely focused on the opportunities. I thought, right, we're the biggest employer in the country. It's all about jobs, and this other stuff is, you know, it's a bit fluffy. But we'll really focus on the on the jobs. And it took me about a year to realise how wrong I was, and that if you get if you walk into Kmart and you get followed by the security guard as you go around the store, you're not going to apply for a job there. And we've got to get this respect and these relationships right to you know to underpin the very important work that needs to be done to um, you know change that intergenerational problem of disadvantage. So that's why I'm passionate about um, there needing to be a voice. Um, why has it been so difficult? I think really there's we have to be realistic that it's not going to be perfect in in its first iteration you know we're we're doing new things and it needs to be able to um, improve and change over time and working with aboriginal and torres strait islander people all over the country they don't have one voice you know they have hugely diverse voices as well and so that's messy like democracy it's going to be a bit messy um but getting the principle of that into the constitution is the important bit to actually say we recognise that uh, First Nations people play a unique role in this country and the way we legislate is not doing them justice. So uh, so having that voice to advise on how policy is affecting Indigenous people um, and, and drive some of that self-determination I think is the only way to make long-term change here. I didn't answer the second part of that question. What was the second part? Um, oh, just what power might um, Indigenous voices into the future have on policy decisions? So I, yeah. I, to some extent I think you answered that. Yeah, but. I mean I, th- I think there is a bit of uncertainty about, about exactly what power that voice will have mm. and, and I do think it's something that we will need to discuss more in order to build community support for the voice. My understanding is that it's an advisory voice. Uh, it won't have a veto power. Um, but it just does create that transparency where government needs to respond to, to to that voice if it is doing something that is not consistent with what it's hearing. Before quick fire, can I just try some? I just wanted to get your opinion on something. I know I know. I see you talking about uh, online gambling, and most of that revolves around advertising to children. We're a school um, and a you know a sports mad school as well, and um, the gam the gambling. I think affects students not just through the online advertising or the advertising through sports clubs but it it comes about almost societal in the fact that it, it's it's a way of engaging with your child or grandkid or whatever it is in likes of footy tipping or something and and that almost you talk about normalizing gambling but isn't that more normalizing of gambling than anything like online advertising and I don't know whether you've really considered it much at all but I see it happening like in my family and kids at kids here kids everywhere that you know they love sport they love footy and they love footy tipping and then where does that lead yeah it's a good point I guess um I'd be reluctant to say let's get rid of all footy tipping because as you say I do think it can be a you know a, a bit of a bonding experience um, the the thing, and I you know I'm very open to learning more about this. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I, the thing that I think is is different is the very sophisticated 
insidious ad campaigns you get from online gambling companies um, who really prey on people when they're sitting at home on the couch with these campaigns that are focused on Oh, you, it's like being with mates, you know, you'll feel like you're part of the gang if you, you know, and it's right there in your hand. And I've heard, I've heard stories from constituents about, uh, especially young blokes losing mm. huge amounts of money and, and really that becoming a problem. And there being so much shame associated with it that, um, people don't talk about it. So I, I'm not, I wouldn't say we need to ban, you know, any sort of footy tipping, but the fact that, um, online gambling advertising revenue has tripled in the last three years, or, or sorry, spend has tripled in the last 10 years. Um, that money is going into our media and into our sports codes, which makes it harder and harder to, to disconnect that. And there's, there's an online gambling ad on average every two minutes on free to air TV in Australia. I think that's too much. And I think that um, it is preying on people who, um, you know, who may have, uh, you know, who, who may be vulnerable to, to that and normalizing it for, for young people. You can still do a footy tipping competition without, you know, without actually thinking that you can't watch a sporting event without having a punt. All right. We've just got a couple of minutes to go before we go out and watch the marching, um, Kate. So thank you so much for um, taking the time to see us today for the podcast and for coming along to our assembly. We really appreciate your time. It's we know how busy you are. Well, it's great to be here. It's one of the, one of my favourite parts of the job, actually. School oh, great. visits. Yeah. Great. <laughs> okay. Um, quick fire question one. Besides engaging in politics and taking the average stroll around like Munga, what do you do to relax? So right now there's not a lot of time for, for relaxing. <laughs> um, I would say reading, but I haven't done a lot of reading lately. I think I'm still yet to find, um, you know, to find that, but probably hanging out with my kids to okay. the extent that they will still hang out with me because <laughs> I've got two teen- teenage boys, but my 11-year-old daughter's a bit more keen to hang out with me still. Great, great. Um, okay, if you're on a deserted island, what would be your favourite album? So I reckon it's probably Crowded House just because it takes me back to a, a, a time of my life that was really fun. Um, so, yeah, it'd, it'd be Crowded House. Excellent. Great band. Um, and just one last one. Um, what habit have you formed in the last five years that has been most beneficial to you? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I reckon it's... Well, it sounds a bit hippie. I think it's a bit of mindfulness. I, I remember um, having this turning, um, reframing things from, oh, it's a pain in the neck that I've got to do this now to let's just be in the moment. So, you know, hanging out the washing and going, I'm just going to stand here, listen to the birds, uh, you know, feel the temperature and be in the moment of this rather than rushing through it to get to the next thing. Um, I don't always practice that, <laughs> um, but just trying to, I suppose, reframe the things in my life that seem like a hassle and thinking about why I'm lucky to actually get to do those things too. That's a great way to finish. All right, Kate Cheney, thank you very much for being here with us at Scotch College and on the Range Project. We really appreciate you um, coming and seeing us today. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Kate. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Range Project, proudly supported by Scotch Parents, Scotch Teaching and Learning and the Old Scotch Collegians Association.